Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. In Psalm 18, it says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Maybe that's exactly what you needed to hear. Doesn't God's word just meet you exactly where you're at every day? I hope you're enjoying uh, your time in the Word today. If you haven't been there, I hope you go. And uh, don't ever have a day where you're not in God's Word. We're going to have a great uh, show. Rob Louie's going to come on the program. You know, he's my Tuesday guest. He lets me know what's going on in Washington, D.C., the state capital or country's capital, and all that's happening across the country. We're going to talk about what happened in Iowa last night. And then Dr. Cal Beisner is going to be joining me from the Cornwall Alliance. He's always Incredibly interesting. Let's take 60 seconds and bring on Rob. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. How true that is. It is so important to learn and grow in our faith by getting into God's word every day. Faith Radio can help with that. Just go to myfaithradio.com and sign up for the verse of the day. You'll receive a daily email with scripture and encouragement. Or sign up through a web link by texting the word VERSE to 555-888. Keep growing in your faith with the Faith Radio Verse of the Day. Today, how is your spiritual heart rate? Maybe you'd like to describe it as racing, so busy with activities that you're exhausted. Or maybe you've pushed God away for so long, you're having trouble finding a pulse. As you listen to Faith Radio, you can sit with God infusing your life with the truth of His Word, finding rest, finding hope, finding health. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. You know, today is the the day after something was supposed to happen in Des Moines. I'm not sure anything did. I think everyone got participation trophies. I'm very curious to, to uh, talk to Rob Bluey, the executive uh, editor of The Daily Signal. He's my go-to guy from Washington, D.C., and he knows all there is to know about what's going on. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks for having me. I thought we were going to have something to talk about today. Well, me too, <laughs> but uh, I, guess, I guess everybody leaves a winner, right? <laughs> why, no. why not? Oh, no official results yet. Uh, still at this uh, this hour, which is just remarkable, and uh, and certainly you you better believe that President Trump and Republicans are having a field day with this. Uh, you know, of course. Um yeah, yeah, there's two different philosophies uh, between uh, conservatives and liberals. Liberals tend to want to ha- consolidate power and uh, and give government more control over things. And uh, I think this is an example of what happens when uh, when things go awry. Uh, nothing gets done, and everybody ends up uh, in a situation like we find ourselves in today. So whether you call it participation trophies or something else, uh, it seems that everybody's going to try to declare victory out of this caucus. And, uh, and it's going to be probably something that everyone just writes off because of the chaos that's ensued. You know, when I... 
was hearing some of the details surrounding this. The Democratic National Convention said we have never been more ready or prepared for a caucus ever. And then they just had this new app they bought that was going to, you know, help everything go smoothly. They bought this two months ago. Apparently this was from the same uh, person that sold Hillary Clinton a bunch of stuff, not adding any conspiracy whatsoever. But it seems like there should have been results. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. This is uh, obviously the first uh, big significant event uh, in New Hampshire will have the first primary, but Iowa always celebrates having the first caucus. This is where candidates have spent the better part of the last year. I mean, think about it. Uh, how many uh, hours were spent uh, canvassing the state and trying to uh, get voters uh, to get in your camp? Uh, and so for something as basic as counting support uh, in this caucus, which has been done uh, for for decades and reported regularly uh, the evening of uh, the event, you would think that it would be something that would be a well-oiled machine, but uh, but as you just indicated, certainly not. Uh, look, technology is prone to fail, and uh, this is something that it seems they should have done a better job of, uh, of preparing for, and we are still getting to the bottom of how it all turned out and who's responsible for it, but I think it's one of those cases where somebody has to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. And then I heard some just Discussion that you know maybe this maybe Iowa shouldn't be the first place people go to because it's too white and everything else. And I thought, well, boy, Iowa produced Barack Obama. That's right. I mean, Iowa has a, a history. Of course, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, went uh, went in, in the uh, 1976 election onto the presidency after getting that huge boost in Iowa. So, yeah, Iowa. I don't see this necessarily displacing um, Iowa from its its status as a first in the nation state. Although there there have been other states that are, are vying for that. I mean, Nevada being one of them. They're uh, they've increasingly you know put themselves in the news because of their uh, their earlier uh, date. And of course, that's a state that after New Hampshire, a lot of attention will turn to. South Carolina uh, always uh, holds a, a special spot and, and has been a decider uh, in some some cases as well. So. Look, no single state is is necessarily going to uh, determine who gets the nomination, but what these states do is signal momentum behind a certain camp. And once you have that momentum, sometimes, uh, you know, that is able to propel you, as it did Barack Obama. And uh, and we'll, so we'll see. We'll see uh, where we go from here. Certainly, uh, New Hampshire is, uh, you know, now just a week away and will we'll probably hold a more significance uh, than, than we had uh, previously expected. Probably the, the biggest perk out of winning Iowa would be that your name and picture would be on the front page of every paper in the United States. Oh yeah, so I mean that's uh, that's clearly uh, what these these campaigns were hoping for. They were hoping for that that boost. Uh, not only do they get their names uh, on the the front page, the headline, uh, which didn't happen this morning, but it's also a great uh, opportunity to raise money. And these campaigns obviously need a lot of money. There's uh, there's some deep pocketed individuals in this race, and uh, and they you know particularly if you're you're a candidate who doesn't necessarily have that base of small dollar donors or relies on small dollar donors, uh, a, a win and I. Iowa uh, could go a long way. Uh, so you have the media attention, you have the, the fundraising capability, uh, you have the enthusiasm that just comes with, with a victory like that. And, uh, and it seems like even if they do put out the results and they, they name a winner, it's going to have a muted effect. Yeah, I would agree. So I have not paid attention to any of the closing arguments uh, for the impeachment vote. Uh, what do you know about that? What can you share? Well, we're, we're nearing a finish uh, of the Senate's trial. Uh, we expect uh, 4 p.m. on Wednesday to be the conclusion when they will vote on the two articles of impeachment. Uh, the closing arguments are largely what you would have expected to hear. Uh, the House managers, led by Adam Schiff, 
have made the case that if President Trump is not uh, removed from office, he will continue to do uh, things that, uh, that, that they've accused him of, and that's a danger to our country. Uh, that's an argument they've been making throughout the trial. And the president's lawyers have uh, retorted that uh, the Democrats are uh, abusing their power, and uh, this is a political impeachment. It's the, the first time in American history where uh, it's lined up along party, uh, party lines, and uh, that's, uh, that's certainly not good for the Constitution or, uh, or the direction that our country is headed. So um, largely, uh, you know, sticking to the script at this point, uh, senators have an opportunity now to uh, speak their mind and share their views on, on the situation. Joe Manchin made some news. He's the senator from West Virginia, a Democrat who comes from a Republican state, announcing that he wanted to censure the president mm-hmm. instead of impeach him. So I, uh, I don't expect to see a whole lot of surprises. I think at this point it's, uh, the, the, the question will become, does President Trump get any Democrats uh, to vote uh, for acquittal um, and, and buck their own party? You know, Rob, I don't know how the process works very well. So if Senator Joe Manchin says maybe we should push for censure, what kind of cooperation does he need for that to g- gain any traction? Well, so uh, the the challenge with that is you would need to cobble together, obviously, a majority to to be able to, uh, you know, advance that. The problem is that a lot of Republicans have already made up their mind, and they're not going to entertain anything, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to vote to acquit. Uh, then I also think Manchin has a problem with some of the, the Democrats, because there are some who are thinking, you know, there's, the, the censure is not nearly strong enough, and so that they are set in their ways. So you'd almost have to pull from, uh, you know, a, a mix of individuals, and I just don't see a lot of movement uh, for that happening. It's similar to, to the Democrats' attempt to call witnesses. You know, they were able to attract the support of two Republicans, Mitt Romney of Utah and Susan Collins of Maine. But without those other two Republicans, they needed to flip. Uh, they were not able to advance that. So any any measure that's proposed at this point, I think, is going to face an uphill climb. Uh, you know, that's just the nature of, of the country we live in. Look at the new uh, opinion poll on President Trump's approval. Uh, the widest gap between Republicans and Democrats in terms of who disapproves and who approves of this president. Uh, the same is pretty much true in the U.S. Senate. I mean, it, it's uh, it's a pretty close mirror image. Mm-hmm. Rob, was censure ever brought up in a serious fashion throughout any of this trial? Uh, well, it's, this is not the first we've heard of it. There have been uh, people who floated the idea. Um, even when the House was, was preparing to vote on the articles, there was some, some talk about whether or not that would be another course of action. Mm-hmm. Because there, there, there was a feeling that there would be some Republicans who might go for a censure uh, rather than uh, the, a total impeachment. But, uh, but no, the issue uh, didn't really come up in a very formal way. And so for Manchin to bring it up now, it seems like a last-ditch effort. And, uh, and you know, look, I think th- a lot of it's politics, too. Uh, this is a tough vote for a senator who comes from a, an overwhelmingly Republican state. Right. And, uh, and although he's been able to win re-election, uh, uh, you know, with his uh, values and the things that, uh, that he's taken back to the state, I do think that, uh, that, that if you come from a deep blue state like a California, you're probably less inclined to pursue that, that route than you would be if you come from a state that uh, is either considered purple, you know, uh, kind of on the edge, or over, overwhelmingly a red state like an Alabama or a West Virginia or a place like that. Yeah. Rob Louie is my guest. As you know, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break. Be back in 90 seconds.
Welcome back to the show. Rob Bluey is my guest. You know him as the executive editor of The Daily Signal and also my Tuesday guest every week, and I'm so grateful for that. So, Rob, what, what do you think we can expect uh, from the State of the Union address tonight? Well, you're going to hear a positive vision about America, which I think is uh, something that this country uh, really needs. And so we live in a, in a moment. Think about all that's happened just in the last few days, the Super Bowl on Sunday. We had the Iowa caucus uh, confusion yesterday. We had the State of the Union uh, today. We have an impeachment uh, trial vote tomorrow. I mean, it is an incredible moment that we are, are living in in this country. And so uh, to to see President Trump in that setting tonight, I think, will, will be historic in its own right. But I think this president has a lot to celebrate. I mean, the great economic news, again, he you know was tweeting earlier today about the, the successful economy and how it's lifted so many Americans um, to, to prosperity and, and helped them out in ways that they would have never imagined. And all Americans, Bill, not just, not just a certain segment of Americans. So I think that you're going to see him talk see and hear him talk about uh, those Americans who have benefited from that. You're going to also see him tell some of his accomplishments, whether it's the First Step Act and criminal justice reform, which was the subject of his Super Bowl ad, or uh, you'll see other things like the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, where he's talking about how he brought a new vision to trade. Uh, all of those things are going to be things that the president will uh, rightfully brag about. And and Bill, I think that uh, we should be uh, prepared for some uh, at some point a mention of impeachment. I have no mm-hmm. idea what he might say about it, but I bet he's going to needle some of those in the House chamber tonight. Yeah, did Bill Clinton bring up impeachment in his State of the Union? Uh, from from what I've researched, no, okay. uh, Clinton uh, did did not talk about it, and Otherwise. I don't think that Trump. I don't think Trump will talk about it at any great length. Because remember, the State of the Union is really an opportunity when you have the floor to paint a positive vision, uh, a vision of America. Even when America has, uh, has faced, uh, been in the midst of wars or, or recessions, uh, you know, presidents oftentimes want to, to rally Americans uh, to their ideas. And so it's a very uplifting speech, and uh, it's one of those things that uh, the president uh, uh, will, will point to people in the audience, for instance, uh, who are special guests of the White House, and, and try to... Uh, evoke the policies that uh, his administration supports uh, through their own personal stories. Mm-hmm. Rob, it seems like nowadays you can create a language crime, uh, and it happened with the, one of the Denver Post columnists who came out and said there are only two sexes identified by XX or XY chromosomes, which is the very definition of binary, and he lost his job. Yeah, uh, you know, it is, uh, it is quite alarming um, that, uh, that we continue to see <laughs> these, these stories play out. Uh, in today's day and age, I mean, so 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 many of them uh, we we highlight on the Daily Signal in part because we find that other media simply don't cover it, and we think that it's a a worthwhile conversation for Americans uh, to be engaging in because what what's happening to so many people today is, is just mind blowing. Uh, I don't know where it stops, Bill. Um, I mean, I think we can keep drawing attention to it and and pointing out the the, the common sense of all of it. Um, and those who who really try to uh, you know police language in, in a way that I think uh, infringes on on freedom of speech and and other things, but uh, but we we need to be strong in this regard because the the, the, the mainstream and liberal media is certainly not uh, on our side on this one, and you have activists who have very strong passions and feelings about it, and it's uh, it's really starting to impact uh, Americans all across this country and all across the world, frankly, that uh, you know that, that some of the actions that we see taking place in other countries are, are more severe and, uh, and restrictive than what's happening here in the United States. I said this, I think, uh, once last week, but I'll say it again because it kind of shocked me. I had a guest in studio that said I went to a, a doctor and he was asking me about my family. And I said, I had four kids. And he said, what are the uh, 
ratio of boys, girls, and in-betweeners? Ah, yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, you know, I keep pretty close tabs, as we've talked about in, before, on, on what my kids are learning in school. And, you know, I, they come home some days, and, you know, a lot of it's on the climate change stuff. I mean, I, I tend to, 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 to hear a lot about how, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's important to have an electric vehicle and all this other stuff. Uh, so far, and I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, so far this really hasn't come up a whole lot. But, uh, but I do know that it's something that gets, that's, that's regularly discussed. Some schools are more aggressive in, in, in pushing, pushing this agenda than others. And I think that that's, uh, that, that's you know, something that parents need to be aware of. Uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, at the Heritage Foundation we're such big supporters of school choice, giving local communities uh, and parents uh, the opportunity to, to make those choices. So if they don't necessarily like the direction that their school is going, they can find an alternative, whether it's a religious school or, uh, you know, an alternative path that, uh, that their, their children or a homeschool. I mean, uh, I think that it's, it's why parents need to be so active and engaged because of things that are seeping into the school agenda today. Mm-hmm. Speaking of climate change, uh, Rob, uh, there in 2004, uh, Vice President Al Gore said, that in the year 2020, Miami will be underwater. Um, I don't know about you, but I think there was a football game there yesterday. On <laughs> That's <Sunday>. right. <laughs> there was certainly a football game there. Uh, one of my colleagues who studies this issue closely has uh, some great items dating back 20, 30, even 40 years, looking at some of the scare, uh, scaremongering that was going on back uh, in, in you know, the 1970s all the way up until 2000 and, and the predictions that were being made about uh, cities disappearing and, and the, the, the catastrophic uh, effects of climate change. And, uh, and we haven't really seen any of them uh, come to fruition. That's not to say that the climate isn't changing. The climate is always changing, yes. and it always has been. And I, I, I'm certainly somebody who believes that uh, there, there is, you know, man-made contributions to that. I mean, let's face it. Uh, I think that uh, we, we as humans have uh, impacted. But I think that sometimes it's drastically overstated. And, uh, and, and you, you have some days uh, that are warm, and it's just because of the weather. It's not necessarily because, you know, the, the climate is, uh, is having this dramatic effect. And, and all of these uh, scaremongering tactics about hurricanes increasing and tornadoes, I also think that, you know, it's very convenient for, for the radical environmentalists to point to climate changes uh, as the cause uh, when sometimes the evidence is uh, more scant than that. And it looks like uh, Greta might be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Well, it's not surprising, right? Uh, I mean, after being named by Time as the Person of the Year, uh, you know, this is uh, this is somebody who the media loves to celebrate, and certainly the elites uh, do as well. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where you know you hope that you can have a, a sound and logical debate uh, on the issues. Oftentimes, it gets tied up in emotions, as uh, her appearance at the UN certainly did. But uh, but you know, look. Bill, at the end of the day, I think we should all be good stewards of the environment. This is one of the reasons that I consider myself a conservative. And, and what's the root of that word? It's to conserve. And mm-hmm. I think we should conserve the great things that, uh, that God has given us on this, uh, this planet of ours. And we need to come back to that and remember it. And, uh, and so what I don't like is that when it becomes so politicized and, and policy proposals are put forward that would uh, do economic harm to some of those who, uh, who, who are you know, the poorest in our, our society and wouldn't necessarily be able to afford all of the things that Al Gore and others uh, want to impose upon them. Yeah. Rob, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump back to a couple of things. I'm kind of in a shorter attention span today. Um, I'm curious about the State of the Union and the optics. Will all the Supreme Court judges be there tonight? Do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg will be there? 
Well, you know, it's always great to see them when they are there. I agree. Uh, I, 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 I don't know if we've had perfect attendance uh, in, in quite some time, so I'm not exactly sure if, uh, if all, all of them will be there. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, is somebody who has, uh, has you know, battled cancer and, and come back from it and is, uh, is certainly a strong individual, and we've said prayers for her on this program before. So I, I hope to see her there. I, I, I hope to see all of them. I think uh, one of the things that I'm so excited about the State of the Union every year is that Americans actually pay attention uh, to some of the policy and, and uh, the, you know, the big debates that we have in this country. I wish that, uh, you know, working for an organization that educates people on public policy, uh, we'd have more nights like this. So it's always great that people understand how the government works and get to see some of the actors uh, right there in the center of the uh, thick of things. Mm-hmm. And did anyone cover the... Uh the Republican caucus in Des Moines last night? Uh, very few, it seems. Did. I'm glad you brought that up. President Trump, uh, of course, uh, winning 97% of the vote there uh, in Iowa. So uh, not getting nearly the uh, the attention or the headlines that, uh, that the Democrats are getting. But I think that, you know, obviously this is a unique scenario where there's been so much uh, chaos and confusion on the Democratic side that it's not surprising. But, uh, but yes, there, you, you'll remember that there was a lot of hoopla over uh, the, the challengers to President mm-hmm. Trump on the Republican side. And it doesn't seem like they've amounted to a whole lot of anything. And, uh, and I wonder if that story will, will get any attention going forward. Yeah, and a friend of mine who lives in Des Moines said that, you know, these polling uh, stations that would normally have 100 people had an excess of 400 at them, just packed to the rafters. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, it's, truly, it's truly amazing. It, it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, been a very interesting night. And be curious to see what comes out of Des Moines uh, and when. We're going to hear some other news other than it's in chaos and we have no win- clear winners yet. Right. Well, we'll be keeping a close eye on it. And, uh, and certainly I, I think that uh, between all the other news that we have, uh, have going this week, uh, it's going to be buried. That's one thing for sure. Oh, yeah. with the State of the Union tomorrow uh, and tomorrow's headlines and then the impeachment acquittal uh, coming on Thursday's papers. So it'll be lucky if, uh, if they get the attention that they, they hope for. But, uh, but like we're, like, well, next week we'll be talking about New Hampshire and we'll be on to the next date. So yeah. there's always something next. Rob, you are awesome. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks, Bill. It's good yep. to talk to you. Yep. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Always head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. I want to get a chance to talk to Dr. Cal Beisner. He's founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And that is a network of over 60 Christian theologians and scientists and economists and scholars and 
They are quite a uh, think tank. And uh, Cal is nice enough to come back and talk about uh, some of the latest developments in the climate change hysteria and the climate change wars. Cal, welcome back. Uh, Thanks very much, Bill. Glad to be back with you. Hey, we are in a new year, uh, starting a new decade, and the global warming rate is bumping right along at about a tenth of a degree per decade. Per decade, huh? doesn't fit the catastrophe claims. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I, I had uh, Gregory Wrightstone on last week, and and I know that Great he's done. Yeah, he's a good guy, really smart, and really enjoyed the conversation. And, it, you know, it always generates lots of interest on behalf of listeners. They always want more information. So tell us, what is the the newest development in the, in the climate wars? Well, uh, I, I think probably actually the, the newest development is a major swing in emphasis here in American politics toward uh, a heavy push for two things in the way of climate policy. One is a carbon tax. Uh, Of course, carbon is a deceptive term there. It should be carbon dioxide. But carbon, of course, is, you know, black soot, and it looks nasty, and Mm -hmm. you breathe it in, it gives you respiratory diseases and stuff like that. And so they use that term instead of carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide is an odorless, colorless, non-toxic gas you know, that, that is no problem to you at all. But uh, people want to impose a carbon tax to drive down emissions of carbon dioxide. And that, of course, would severely raise all energy costs for everybody because the vast majority of our energy is going to continue to come from uh, coal, oil, and natural gas, especially oil and natural gas. The other one is uh, a huge push now going on for what's called carbon capture and storage. Uh, that's the idea that you, you capture the CO2 that comes when you burn the, the fossil fuels and you, you, uh, you, you pressure pack it inside uh, an underground uh, salt mine or something of that sort And uh, that way you try to keep it from going into the air. And, you know, Bill, if folks are are worried that uh, spent nuclear fuel, which is solid uh, and which gets encased in glass so it can't move and then gets encased in essentially magnesium steel uh, containers and then gets put uh, thousands of feet down into into, uh, uh, granite, to keep it there. If folks get worried about that coming out and being a problem, hey, CO2 being a gas could come out a whole lot easier. And you know what? If a whole bunch of it came out in a small valley, it would kill every breathing thing in that valley within a few minutes. Not because CO2 is toxic, but because it would rob them of oxygen. Uh, It's heavier than air. So it would fill the valley until it finally dispersed. By that time, people would be dead. So would all the animals and the flies and, well, the mosquitoes, too. So that might not be such a bad thing. Yeah. (laughs) That's unbelievable, Cal. Yeah, well, it happened uh, back in 1986 at Lake Nios in Cameroon. Uh, In this case, it was natural CO2 that was coming up. There there is a a geological formation there that, that essentially puts a bunch of CO2 at the bottom of that lake. And then there was a seismic shift there. And essentially the the CO2 bubbled up 
and it filled the valley, and within minutes, it killed about, uh, I believe it was 2,700 people and about 5,500 livestock, plus everything else in the valley that breathed. Well, you know, anyway, the, the, the real problem is simply that both uh, the carbon tax and the carbon, uh, carbon capture and storage uh, are very, very expensive. The carbon capture and storage, in fact, is is not even technologically feasible on a scale necessary to to, to capture all the CO2 that you put out of a, a power plant. And they would just jack up the cost of living for everybody for no real dividend in the way of climate change. So we are, for the first time in, I don't know how many years, we're independent from Middle Eastern oil. And yes, first time, indeed. First time ever. So... Does the fuel, does the fossil fuel industry, uh, do they make a habit of, of passing out disinformation about it? Well, it depends on whom you listen to. Uh, some people think that they constantly uh, do. Other pe- people think that they never do. You know, I, I would say the fossil fuel industry is human beings, just like the rest of us. Most of those human beings would prefer to have a clean, healthful, beautiful environment in which to live. And so they're not out to try to mess things up. But just like you and me, uh, they have some competing interests. They want to keep the costs of doing their business down. And so essentially what we can say is just like all other businesses, they're going to try to paint a rosy picture for what they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, We hope that they're going to be basically honest about it. But it's up to everybody to do what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast what is good. Now, I have looked a great deal at the information coming from the fossil fuel industries, and generally it's it's pretty sound. Uh, Recently, uh, the uh, New York Attorney General's office had filed a uh, suit against Exxon, uh, alleging that Exxon had hidden for years what it knew about global warming and that thus it had deceived its shareholders, making them think that their shares were worth more than they really will be if it turns out that global warming is a big problem. Uh, (laughs) The judge tossed that suit out in a way that was downright humiliating to the New York Attorney General's office. He showed that the, the uh, documentary record showed that ExxonMobil had been totally above board with all of that for decades, running clear back into the 1960s. Wow, that's so interesting. So, Cal, I was uh, looking at a list of some of the bigger misses that have gone on. I, I suppose all we have to do is look back to see what was said and then what's happened to realize that, speaking of misinformation or predictions they're they're all wrong all the time aren't they <laughs> yeah uh, I, I think you may be looking at a list that we recently uh, uh, linked to in one of our mailings of various different predictions made by uh, environmental alarm, uh, alarmists over the decades um, predictions of uh, dangerous global cooling that were common in the 1960s and 70s Uh, predictions of dangerous global warming in the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, and uh, teens, and neither of those has turned out. Predictions that we would lose the ozone layer over the Earth, uh, that never came about. Uh, Predictions of acid rain destroying forests all over the American Northeast and all over Europe, that never came about. Uh, And it wasn't, by the way, because we cut acid emissions from power plants 
it was because, as it turned out, the acid in the rain didn't have any negative effect on the forests. In fact, it was in fact it was actually a fertilizing effect. Mm. The worst problem with it was that it tended to corrode granite monuments. And of course, there is always that uh, population bomb that was going to cause global oh, famine yeah. by the year 2000. That I don't think that happened. Well, not only by the year 2000, but in 1968, Paul Ehrlich in his book, The Population Bomb, said that no matter what we did to try to prevent it, hundreds of millions of people all over the world would die of starvation in the 1970s because population had outstripped food production. The exact opposite happened. Famine became less common uh, throughout the 1970s and has become less common every day, decade since then, because our food production is far outstripping population growth. Uh, so hunger is now far less common in the world than ever in all human history. Uh, these kinds of predictions go on all the time, and yet these folks keep getting honored. They keep getting believed by uh, the media, by entertainers, by politicians, and unfortunately by the public. And Noel Brown, director of the New York office of the UN Environment Program, claimed in 1989 human beings had 10 years to stop, yeah. to stop global warming. That was in 1989. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of something that uh, AOC, Alexandria, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, said uh, about a year ago that we had uh, we had uh, 10 years to, to, to take action or uh, or we'd all be dead in 12 years. So when we hear uh, AOC, yeah, when we hear AOC say things like that, do we have a point of reference that we go, mm, no, we've already heard that we were supposed to be done in 1989? Yeah, we certainly should have a point of reference. The point of reference is you go to the actual data, yeah. and and the data uh, show you that it's quite the other way. And you know what's really strange, uh, Bill, is that you can go to the actual assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the big UN body that, that studies this. And, and keep in mind, by the way, it is not properly a scientific body. It is an inter governmental yeah yeah intergovernmental IPCC yeah uh, anyway you, you go to that and it is it is political more than it's scientific mm -hmm. the scientific work in the assessment reports is actually mostly pretty good and you don't find any of the emergency claims in there the alarmism just isn't there. The alarmism is only in the summaries for policymakers, and those are written by the politicians, not by the scientists. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the climate hysteria would be what it is if we didn't have the Internet? Uh, you know, there are all kinds of hysterias that wouldn't be as they are oh, if so we true. didn't have the Internet. It just, you know, Mark Twain said something about, uh, you know, uh, a lie will get uh, twice around the world before the right. truth gets its boots on. Uh, yeah, that is the case for pretty much all of the, the false information. But you know what, too? The Internet is usable by those who tell the truth. Oh, absolutely. So we can also smack down the lies quickly. Yeah. So when we talk about uh, even, I think it was in the late 50s, there was the, the coming Ice Age. And maybe it was in the 70s. It was on the cover of Time magazine going, we're going to freeze over. Get ready. 
Yeah, yeah, right through the 60s, into the 70s, into the late 70s. Uh, but then, of course, you had scientists who actually switched their position on that. Stephen Schneider of Stanford had been a major proponent of the notion that we were coming into the Ice Age until the late 1970s, early 80s, and then he began to, uh, to sort of uh, uh, what uh, hesitate about that. And by the mid to late 80s, he had switched completely into warning that we're headed for disastrous global warming. Neither one of his warnings has proved true. Yeah, let me take a little break, Cal. I want to open it up for uh, listeners to jump in with their questions. I already had someone uh, ask right. about the list of the scare tactics that you talked about. Is that at your uh, um, website, Cornwall Alliance? It sure is. It's on our blog. Just go to cornwallalliance.org, click on blog, and start scrolling down. You'll come to that. Perfect. Cal Beisner is my guest. Cornwallalliance.org is where to go look. We'll take a short break, and we're absolutely open to taking your questions for Cal. I know this is a lot of people uh, very interested in this. 877-933-2484 is the number. I'll say it again slowly. 877 332484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. I always love talking to Cal. Go to cornwallalliance.org and learn everything about uh, his website and, and his uh, brilliant staff of writers and thinkers. Uh, so, Cal, I mentioned this earlier in the show because I found this interesting because, uh, you know, Greta's going to be nominated maybe for the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't even use her last name because she's like Cher already. <laughs> right. Just Greta. Greta. <laughs> Just like AOC. I'm right. Cher. Greta. Yeah, that's yeah. all you need. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah, that seems pretty likely. Um, and uh, it's it's more a sign of the degree to which the Nobel Peace Prize has become highly politicized than anything else. I mean, she has not made any significant contribution to world peace. Uh, she's actually, if anything, contributed to stirring up greater conflict in the world. I mean, if you've watched her speeches before the UN and to, to uh, uh, the, the gathering in, in Washington, D.C., where she spoke and things like that, uh, or at Davos, and she's angry. She's very angry, and she wants other people to be angry at each other. I'm not sure exactly what uh, how that qualifies one for a peace prize. Mm-hmm. I know it's always very helpful, Cal, if you can uh, help us once again just kind of reframe the discussion as how Christians should think and, and engage with other people about this climate change. Uh, should we call it hysteria? What do we call it? Yeah. Well, I mean, hysteria is one word for it. Alarmism is another. Uh, exaggeration, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as Christians, we should enter all of these things in, in terms of our biblical worldview. And that biblical worldview tells us that an omniscient uh, designer, an om- omnipotent creator, a faithful sustainer made and sustains this world, and he declared it all very good when he made it. Now, the idea that our pumping a little more CO2 into the atmosphere to bring it from, say, uh, 28 thousandths of 1% of the atmosphere to 56 thousandths of 1% of the atmosphere uh, by, uh, say, the end of this century would cause catastrophic warming of, of the Earth, 
that idea really requires the notion that the climate system was pretty foolishly designed, that it was not a, a, a good thing at all. And I think that just doesn't fit our biblical worldview. And consequently, when we hear it, we should be uh, we should be automatically skeptical. And then we should really do the hard scientific work to test those claims. And, and when we do, what we find is that the actual observations, and that's what science is all about, is real empirical observations. The actual observations say that we have seen the planet warm at a rate that is, oh, half to a third, perhaps even only a fourth of what is predicted by the models based on the notion that CO2 is a primary driver of warming. So in other words, the empirical evidence supports what our biblical worldview uh, suggests in the first place. And, and so that's how we as Christians need to approach it. Also with the realization that the Bible tells us we must always be concerned about the poor. And all of the policies meant to try to reduce global warming are policies that will jack up the price of energy for everybody. Now, that hurts everybody, of course. But, you know, the average American family spends about 10% of its income on energy. The average American family with income under $10,000 per year spends instead about 70% of its, uh, its income on energy. So if you jack up the price of energy by 10%, well, it affects the average family by increasing its energy costs by 1%. It affects the poor family by increasing its energy costs by 7% of its income. I mean, that's, that's just really regressive, and it's shocking that people who call themselves progressives would be supporting it. It's interesting, uh, Cal, Rebecca, the producer of the show, and I were chatting during the break, and you know, she said that we often get caught up in a narrative which we sort of believe it's true because we've heard it enough times. I mean, you hear that, yeah. you know, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, and you go, you hear that enough times, and you go, well, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but you go to Scripture, and there's there's no evidence of that. So, you no know, evidence start, at all. No, no evidence. But we start to hear these stories of climate disaster, and you hear it enough times, and you're going to go, I don't want to be the fool that doesn't believe what's coming. Yeah. You know, it, it's an easy thing for any of us to fall into. I, I can name an example of myself doing that. Just recently, I mean, I, I realized I have typically taught, thought of or, or spoken of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as if it were, okay, fallible, but at least generally reliable in its work. Well, I just reread recently the book, <laughs> the, uh, the Delinquent Teenager Who Was Mistaken for the World's Top Climate Scientist, <laughs> a book by Donna Laframboise, a new Canadian journalist. And it's a devastating critique of the IPCC, showing all kinds of ways in which it breaks its own rules, all kinds of conflict of interest and everything else. And I realized, you know, I read this almost 10 years ago, and it devastated the IPCC in my eyes. But I see again and again in all the news, IPCC looked at as, you know, the word from Mount Sinai about climate change, and I needed to readjust my thinking again. Uh, that's something that we all uh, tend to do, is to just accept what comes all the time through the media. And we need, again, as I said before, to do what Paul says in First Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast what is good. And I love it. So when I think of the, the earth, the world that God has created, and all of the natural resources he placed in it, 
um, I think they're there for us to use, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we, we get that message from, from Genesis 1, 28 and 2, 15. In 1, 28, we have uh, God saying to Adam and Eve, creating his image, uh, he blesses them. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. That's, uh, you know, that is the opposite of the typical environmentalist message that we should minimize our footprint on the earth. Uh, Genesis 2.15, uh, when God placed Adam into the Garden of Eden, he, he put him there to cultivate and guard the garden. Uh, that is, the cultivating should enhance its fruitfulness, and the, garden, uh, the, the guarding should enhance its safety. Uh, we should be doing both of those things, and those things are for man's benefit. Uh, this is this is what we as Christians should be seeking to do. Mm-hmm. Cal, have you had conversations with skeptics? You know, people that are really in the in the um, uh, hysteria camp. I'm, and I'm I'm referring to even younger. Oh, many times. No, no, no. But I'm looking for the younger kind of the college student age who have bought into this completely. And I'm just curious as to the way in which they engage with you um, and how, how you come well, out it, with them. Yeah, it varies. Um, usually what I try to do is to just simply ask them a lot of questions, not really attacking, but ask them questions that should reveal to them the extent of their own lack of factual knowledge about the issue. Uh, for example, um, uh, I was I was actually picketed by a group of, of young people where I was speaking one time. Then I went out and I talked with the picketers. And after they got finished shouting at me for a while, I quieted them down a little bit. And I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Um, how many of you know uh, what would be the change in global average temperature at the end of the century if we had perfect implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement? And absolutely none of them had any notion whatsoever. And then I said, and, and how many of you know what would be the cost of implementing the Paris Climate Agreement? And none of them had the foggiest notion. I said, well, the answers are uh, roughly three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit temperature reduction in 20, uh, 2100 and 70 to $140 trillion. That's 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars per tenth of a degree Fahrenheit temperature reduction for global average temperature at the end of the century. Do you all think that's a good deal? And you should have seen their faces. I mean, it was like, whoa, I never thought about this before. So, yeah, I I try to ask questions rather than just kind of going on the attack. Which is obviously always the right way to do it. Um, But it'd be uh, nice to have you you know, behind the uh, the FICA plant, whenever I'm talking to someone, I can just pull you out and go, so, Cal, what do you think about what they just said? That would be very helpful for me. Um, so what other uh, piece of uh, climate news are you, uh, are you, is on your desk today? Well, I'll tell you, uh, something that you can put the, behind the FICA plant for yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, as, as you know, every month, the Cornwall Alliance uh, offers to give a free book or DVD, some sort of resource, to anybody who makes a donation of any size, no matter how small. 
Uh, and so this month we're offering one of my very, very favorite books in the entire field. It's a wonderful book called Taken by Storm, The Troubled Science, Policy, and Politics of Global Warming by uh, applied mathematician Christopher Essex and uh, environmental economist Ross McKittrick. It's a brilliant book. It, it, it won the Donner Prize for Excellence in Policy Education in Canada, where it was published. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant, and it's also hilarious. Uh, it, it does a great job of educating, and part of how it does that is just by, by making so many things so humorous. We're offering that to anybody who makes any donation of any size by the end of February as our way of saying thank you. All okay. they have to do is go to CornwallAlliance.org, click on the donate button, make a donation of any size, and ask for Taken by Storm. I know what I'm doing tonight because I'm definitely going to get that. And I'm happy to make a donation to the Cornwall Alliance, and I'm happy to get your materials because they're so excellent. Cal, thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Yep. God bless. Yep. Have a great, great week. Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest. Go to cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. We'll take a short break, and Hour 2 is coming up with uh, Todd Mulligan. Can't wait. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.